When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anything from that era, I'm just like, God, I wish I could have been there. What is that so appealing to you about that era? The music and the changes, I guess. A lot of my favorite artists are from that time. I really feel like I missed out. It's like nostalgia (laughs) for a time I never even experienced. The 20th century was the movie's first century, when the original classics were made and beloved by audiences. But do these film classics of the past still hold up in our age of YouTube, TikTok, and on-demand binge viewing? Can the greatest cinema of the last century still reach young audiences who were born long after these films were released? Well, here's where we find out. Welcome to Generation Film. The films were chosen by your two 20th century born hosts. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker and instructor at the Los Angeles Film School and CEO of Electrocast Media. And I'm David Talisic, filmmaker and producer director at Electrocast Media. And our young guests introduced for this episode are... Uh, hi, my name is Guy Lewis. I'm a film student. I'm going to be a producer when I graduate, and I love movies. And I'm Grace Chapman. I also love movies. I'm a film student at the Los Angeles Film School. I hope to be a screenwriter one day, but I change my mind every day. And I'm Jake Flowers. I am also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, majoring in entertainment business. Okay, just three days ago, we gathered together for a really high-quality screening of the surprise winner of the 1969 Academy Award for Best Picture, Midnight Cowboy, which stars John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. And just for the record, our uh, younger guests here, had any of you ever seen this movie before? It was my very first time seeing Midnight Cowboy. Mine too. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. David, maybe uh, for our audience, you can give a little synopsis of the movie. Yeah. So it tells the story of Joe Buck, who's played by John Boyd in one of his first major roles. He's a handsome and charming, but not very bright young guy who moves from his little Bible Belt town in rural Texas to New York City. And his dream is to make it big as a hustler, a gigolo for rich women in the newly sexually liberated Manhattan of 1968. As one does when they move to New York City. (laughs) <laughs> well, but most of us don't do it for money, but that's, that's, that's how it's going to make a decision. He gets off the Greyhound bus in Midtown Manhattan and he's a fish out of water. He's preyed on by the way more savvy hustlers around, especially Ratso Rizzo, who's played famously by Dustin Hoffman. And Ratso is a pathetic, limping con man who's just struggling to survive. He totally takes advantage of Joe Buck. And Joe Buck doesn't need anyone to make things hard for him because nothing works out for him anyway. So he and Ratso both hit bottom pretty fast. Ratso, who is lonely and maybe even feels a little bad about the way he's taking advantage of Joe, not quite sure, but he invites Joe to share this squalid, unheated, abandoned tenement room where he's squatting illegally. And Raxo tries to hook Joe up with rich women who are willing to pay because they don't have money for food. Finally, the only way he can really get paid is to turn tricks with closeted gay men who prowl what was then a very seedy Times Square. I like the Disneyland Times Square of today. That was the good old fashioned, <laughs> disgusting Times Square. Right. It's not what Joe was uh, planning when he moved to New York. But the two just suffer through a miserably cold Manhattan winter with no heat. Great job of selling this movie. I just want you to know this is like one that people are going to be dying <laughs> to see now. <laughs> so Joe catches a break and these hip people invite Joe to this like happening Andy Warhol style party downtown. And he manages to get high with a young rich woman who agrees to pay him for sex. And right as that happens, Raxo finds himself in a crisis and Joe is faced with a big life decision. I will warn our audience that as we discuss the movie, we do want to be able to talk about various plot elements. So there may be spoilers and we're not going to be shy about that. The movie is 
53 years old, so you can probably find as much as you want about it on the internet. It's not exactly a secret what happens at the end of the movie. But uh, I don't know, David, I've seen this movie. This is probably the fifth time I've seen it over the course of my life. I think me too, fourth or fifth time. I've seen it on VHS. I've seen it in the theater a couple of times. I've seen it on DVD now. We saw it in a pretty big screen. I caught a lot of things that I missed seeing it on VHS 12 or 15 years ago, which might be the last time I'd seen it. All right. So I want to ask our young guests over here, what was your immediate reaction when you were watching the movie? Did it hold your interest after the movie? What were you feeling? And now that we're about three days down the line from having watched it, have your feelings changed? Has it stayed in your memory? You know, I see a Marvel movie and usually I forget what happened like by the time I hit my car. Right. So I'm just wondering if this was more resonant, less resonant. Uh, any of you jump in if you want to start. What I remembered was this underlying grittiness of New York and the Warholian party and the people. And oftentimes with movies, my brain connects to that glitz and glamour and the excitedness of the film. And so as the days had continued on, I more and more stuck with that than with the performance of the actors or with the connection that they had. And a lot of the critical review focused mostly on the acting and the connection of the two main characters. And for me, it was the absurdity and this very strange way of capturing New York at the time. So when you're talking about the grittiness and the Warhol type party, which had actual members of Warhol's factory as actors in it, but Andy himself didn't appear. Were you feeling a sense of nostalgia? Were you feeling like it was like another world that you were fascinated to see explored? What is it about the grittiness and the depiction of New York City at the time that you think made such an impact on you? For me personally, New York is like a dreamland. And this caricature of dirtiness and the people on the street and they're not having the time of day for you and the adversity that the main characters face was a caricature of that in my mind. And so to see it in real time in 1969, as it was depicted by Hollywood, it was just almost this realism and this realization of those ideas. And I think to what you said about the party scenes and the nostalgia aspect of it is that I was excited and did I miss out on this amazing epic era of just raging and like, I feel like being an art freak and yeah, and the fashion and I connected so much with that and wanting to be there in that moment and mm. be Joe Buck for a moment in my crazy <laughs> fringe jacket and just fucking <laughs> partying my ass off with cool people. Now, Grace, you were just saying that you felt some of that same sense of uh, FOMO. Yeah, definitely. Anytime I see anything from that era, I'm just like, God, I wish I could have been there. What is that that's so appealing to you about that era? Just the music and just the changes, I guess, because before that time, there was really no, no social movement like that. And I just wish I could have been a part of that to see it all. A lot of my favorite artists are from that time. I just really feel like I missed out. Yeah, it's like nostalgia for a time <laughs> I never even experienced. Agree. Let me ask you, there are a lot of social movements now. In fact, in some ways, things have gone back a little bit politically to the feeling of the 60s. Is there some way that you think the 1969 social protest environment was preferable to what's now? They were a little more serious about it. Like it just seemed more heartfelt. And not so much like for show, because nowadays all you have to do is like post on Instagram and people are like, oh, you're an activist. But back then you actually had to like be about it and do something about it. Mm -hmm. And that they actually like made change. Like nowadays it feels like it, our protests are just in vain, pretty much. A lot of them. I'm not saying that about everybody, but the general movement is just not the same compared to the late 60s, I think. Yeah, I agree. It it's, like a, it's a watered down version of what we didn't get to be a part of. Mm. And Grace, does that kind of encapsulate your feelings when you were watching the movie or did you have a different kind of reaction watching it and then thinking about it afterwards? I enjoyed the movie a lot. I'm not very squeamish, but just the gritty rawness of it was a little hard to watch but at the same time I couldn't look away <laughs> and I really I, I really enjoyed it and I've been thinking about it for a few days and it's definitely resonated with me you said it's resonated with you is there any particular image or images that pop up in your head now when you think about it a few days later 
Mm, definitely the Warhol party and a lot of Ratso. He, uh, Dustin Hoffman really impressed me with his performance and that character just for some reason, I really was drawn to him. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there's something about Ratso where, and, and this is Hoffman's genius, you know, it's like the lowest rung of society, essentially. And he's not a particularly good person, although he eventually becomes kind of good to Joe Buck because he's so lonely. But back then, that performance was like a landmark. People mm-hmm. were talking about it for 10 years. Well, I could see why. Right. That's crazy because when I saw that performance by Hoffman, it just reminded me a lot of Rain Man. Which he won the Oscar for. About- yeah, yeah. I know that it just came out before Rain Man. The tone of voice and some of the cadence, I think he kind of drew from that character of Rizzo. But the thing that struck me is how much... Angelina Jolie looks like her dad. I know. There were, oh there, there were so many times where I, you know, it was like, that's Angelina Jolie. I just got yeah. here for our audience. John Voigt, for those who don't know, who plays Joe Buck, is Angelina Jolie's uh, estranged father. Mm-hmm. Right. And when he made the film, he was in his young 20s. So he was similar to the age that Angela Jolie was when we were introduced to her. What's funny to me is I think we didn't really notice that resemblance because... We saw John Voight first, and then we saw John Voight get old over the years. And then much later, Angelina Jolie showed up. First 10 minutes, I was so distracted. All I could see was Angelina Jolie. I was like, what a beautiful woman doing in this cowboy hat. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be one of the interesting things in this podcast series, I hope, because time goes by and the difference between seeing Rain Man first and then seeing this, Mm -hmm. it's very different from seeing this in 1969 or I didn't see it in 69 because I was 10 years old and it was rated X. So I probably saw it in 1979 or so. But even seeing it then, it was still the new style of acting. The only thing people had seen Dustin Hoffman in until then was The Graduate, where he plays Benjamin Braddock, this really clean-cut guy right out of college, lives in the suburbs, rich parents. And so everyone thought, oh, he's going to be a movie star. So women were like chasing him in the street. And then he decided to do this thing. Wearing all the bad teeth, and he's limping. The teeth were disgusting, by the way. On the big screen, oh, they were oh, oh, yeah. disturbing. Yeah. Well, people were very impressed. And of course, his uh, agent begged him not to do this film. because They said, it's just going to ruin your career. But he told them, I don't want to be a movie star. I want to be an actor. And he got but an Oscar nomination for it. First, Bright Dustin Hoffman, he made himself into Ratso Rizzo. And then met Schlesinger, who thought of him as Benjamin Braddock. And he showed him no, and Schlesinger was so impressed that he cast him. You know, this brings up issues about how things are different 53 years ago versus today. Now, this movie was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. It was um, United Artists, which was always the most independent of Hollywood studios, but it still was a studio movie. It still was shot in a kind of a gritty style, even though some of it was a bit caricature. I think the party, in a way, is sort of a caricature of that time, although for all I know, it's exactly what those parties were like. But uh, I, I went to a couple of his parties. <laughs> <laughs> is it like that? <laughs> yes. Uh, believe it or not, there were those characters. Now, it wasn't all like that. A lot of people, a lot of crazy stuff going on. I think there were people that we would now look at as caricatures that actually were that way. Like the guy with the hair who said, my hair just goes out to infinity. And, you know, Amazing. Was, I mean, there were people high enough to talk like that. And it, and not only that, who, but we thought it was cool to talk like that. Like they'd be admired. These parties were all underground. They were like hidden in downtown Manhattan at the time. It's hard to believe. Uh-huh. Which I grew up in downtown Manhattan and my block was fine. But I walked three blocks east and it was so scary. You can't believe it. And there were all these abandoned buildings and empty lots. And in some of them, these fabulous parties were going on with some of the most famous artists and authors, New York attracted all the artists and uh, musicians of the world because they had to flee Europe. And there was uh, cheap rent, which there doesn't exist today. You you could be an artist in New York back then because the rent was like 25 bucks a month or something, you know? Well, it was 25 bucks a month in Paris too at the time, but Paris was destroyed by the war. Um, Whereas New York was like up and coming and it was happening there. The art scene had moved there. All the movies and television were being made there. So everyone benefited from the fact that people, whether they're rich or poor, if they were like talented and wanted to be in the middle of things or untalented yeah. and wanted to be in the middle of things, they were there. So I, w- I want to pivot a little bit to something that you were bringing up, David. So the director, John Schlesinger, uh, 
next movie made after this was Sunday Bloody Sunday, which was actually a bisexual love triangle. And Schlesinger, you know, I think people who knew him back then knew that he was gay and he came out, you know, when it became safer later in the 80s. So one of the things that's really interesting is along with, you know, depicting the New York scene, depicting these kinds of people marginalized in society, there are some depictions or undercurrents of homosexuality in the movie. And I'm really interested to know from the younger folks out there, does it feel like it was obvious? Was it corny? Does it hold up today? Or would you do things differently if you were, uh, you know, remaking it? I'll speak to this. Um, I think I have some personal experience in this department, but... A little more cred than some of us. Exactly. And connected. And I was surprised by this film because I'm so used to seeing films from eras past that got it wrong. And I didn't know the background or the history or the personal life of the director at the time while I was watching. And I resonated with so many of the characters in many different ways. The young boy on 42nd Street that was trying to get Joe Buck and didn't have the money to pay. Then I resonated with the young, maybe gender fluid individual from the bar that was just like taunting and full of sass and tenacity. And and then I resonated. Yes, and the style. And I resonated with the people from the party. And I had in other films be like, this isn't right. This isn't me. This doesn't represent my community. And knowing the perspective of the director that I understand why I was like, okay, slay, you know, like it, it made so much sense. And there was this depiction of queer folks in the late sixties. That was like this desperado and it was sad and it was real. And the boy was begging, don't tell my mom, don't, mm. you know, out me. And then the solicitors on 42nd street. And then there was all these different aspects of the community. And I think maybe he was entrenched in that world and that community and had a perspective of that and drew from his internal struggle, the director, I mean, and was able to place this and offset it in the movie. I definitely connected with it. And it was also interesting to see that like these archetypes of people from the queer community that I know and and I connect with every day had existed and we've always been here. Would you all agree that guy you mentioned who's telling him, oh, you're going to get taken advantage of? He seems to me to be the only gay character in the film who's comfortable about being gay, who's open about being gay, and who's happy about it. Uh, right. Agreed. Am I right? Yeah. I think so maybe that- some, some ambiguous characters from the party, but yeah, the one that you're just supposed to accept and know is clear and... But there's so much shame and so much um, furtiveness going around around the other gay characters. Well, particularly, yeah. I actually kind of thought that was weird because Joe Buck was bisexual, yeah? Well, was he? That's yeah. a great question. Years ago, there would be these hustlers, you know, guys, and they would allow men to perform, you know, sexual acts on them. Pay for pay. Right. But they would, <laughs> exactly right. That's the, right, Grace. They would not consider themselves gay. They would beat you up if you said they were gay because they really were just doing it for money. Mm-hmm. So I think that Joe Buck was kind of in that situation where, you know, as as having sex, you're seeing flashbacks to him with the girl in Texas that he had that ill-fated relationship with. The sexuality of Joe Buck, first of all, one, it's a really dope name for a male prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. It's like a... a, Brilliant. (laughs) A porn man. Perfect. That's dope. You know, um, but uh, for me, when he left Texas, after all that happened to him... He uh, was trying to sell himself to women, but then when the very first opportunity to sell himself for uh, sex with a man, he was not hesitant. He kind of just like went right to it, you know, like, hey, this is what I'm doing now. So there's one shot maybe that was intended to kind of serve as the transition where he's deciding what's he going to do. He has no money and he looks in the window of this diner and he sees a young, handsome guy cleaning dishes like he had to do and the guy looks quite sad. And I think he says to himself, I can't go back to working a shitty job. For some reason, he doesn't consider having sex to be a shitty job. He says, that's all I was made for. It's a love. It's a lover boy. Yeah, lover boy. That's, that's how he saw himself. I think that's- because of his childhood that his idea of sex was more fluid. And he was so exposed at such a young age. And maybe his guardian being a sex worker as well kind of affected the way that he viewed sex and what was accessible to him and what wasn't. 
also growing up in this stoic Bible Belt town, I think he equates love with sex. He doesn't really have a lot of love. His grandmother takes care of him, but you know, all the love he's experienced is very sexualized. He hasn't had tender love. You know, the core of the story is a love story between two men. It's not a sexual love. It becomes a very deep love between the two guys. And I think that's what makes it so heartbreaking at the end and resonant that in essence, not to put too hard a spoiler on it, Ratso kind of sacrifices himself for Joe, but actually leads Joe to the promised land at the end. The heart of the movie for me in the part that affects me the most is that Joe is looking for love. That's what he wants. He goes to New York. He thinks he's going to find it by finding, you know, a rich woman who's going to help him along in life. He gets the opposite of love. He gets mistreated, rejected. It's awful. The only person who will love him is Ratso Rizzo. Yeah. And he's the last person he wanted to love or to be loved by. I'd like to talk for a second about, even though it's really a movie about two men, there are some women in the film. And we have Sylvia Miles, who appears as the woman who kind of out-hustles Joe, manipulates him. And then you have Brenda Vaccaro from the party, who almost is like a guardian angel or something. So, you know, maybe this is a good question for Grace. Did you identify at all with any of the women or even with the guys? How do you feel about the depiction in the film of the female characters? I thought they were depicted in mostly an intelligent light because most movies kind of depict women not in the best light. But I really liked the first woman who out hustled him. She was pretty funny and dramatic. The only woman I kind of had a problem with was the girl from the flashbacks, like with all the rape. I didn't understand what they were trying to say with that. That was kind of my only issue with the movie. I don't know. I just feel like rape scenes are not necessary. <laughs> right. And it wasn't, it's not as ex- Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't graphic. It's like so crazy to me that's rated X, but it's just about these scenes. You don't see anything graphic. And it was re-rated as an R a few years later. So I learned something interesting about that too, which is the MPAA actually wanted to rate it R and the studio insisted on the X rating. Arthur Krim, the head of the studio, insisted they rated X. He says it was for two reasons. One, he was worried about young people seeing this film. He had a psychologist friend. The textbook that psychologists used described homosexuality as a disease. I mean, it's crazy. Now we think that's crazy, but that's not what has to be mainstream. So you listen to that guy because that guy was a big authority in the psychiatric community. And he didn't want to damage anybody psychologically. The other thing is he kind of realized as it went along that maybe the X rating was an interesting publicity angle. There weren't very many X rated films. And this was before Uh, the porn industry basically usurped the X rating, which led to the NC-17 rating from the MPAA to distinguish between porn films and just films that anyone under 17 couldn't go to. Right. So the original ads for it said stuff like, whatever you've heard about this film, it's true. Got to get butts in the seat somehow. <laughs> you know, Grace, what you were saying over there, the flashbacks in the credits, I think she's called Crazy Annie or Crazy Sally or something. And the idea is, you know, the town treats her as being crazy, though she is probably just another love-starved person. She's the only character who has real nudity in the movie. Mm-hmm. And she's played by the screenwriter's daughter, Jennifer Salt. Waldo Salt was oh, the God. screenwriter. <laughs> yeah, a little weird, right? <laughs> I also read that Waldo Salt was blacklisted for a long time before that. And he was, he hadn't written anything since the 40s. And he was like a depressed alcoholic, but they just gave him a chance for this. And he did a pretty good job. <laughs> Besides yeah, putting my daughter in that. <laughs> that scene. Yeah, kind of well, strange you know, there. So it's funny. People were very squeamish about male nudity in 1969. And they were much less squeamish about female nudity. And it wasn't just in movies. You saw this in museums and mm-hmm. all over the place. And uh, there were a lot of actresses who actually, it was sort of a rite of passage to like do a nude scene and show that they were, you know, modern yeah. and liberated. Mm-hmm. It kind of just reminds me of how like people were shaped when you watch all reruns of Laughing and stuff from that era. It just seemed consistent with, you know, it, just, it wasn't a shock to me that there was going to be some nudity I wasn't shocked by the nudity. I was shocked more by the the gang rape. <laughs> you were like, what is going on? There's always that question that you're asking, yeah. trying to figure out that piece of the plot. What are we splicing to? What is happening here back at home? 
but we see and we can feel that it emotes this painful memory and that it adds to the character of Joe Buck and his lonely spirit. And another thing that I wished had developed a little bit more was the experience he had after he tried to get the money and met that really young John on 42nd Street and, and the way in which he may have seen himself, the desperation. And he was like, oh shit, this is me. I can't beat this guy up for some chump change because I'm just in the same exact spot as him. You know, we're all, we're he, desperate. Did he beat that guy up though? He started to, and then he kind of stopped himself and was whatever, you know, I'm going to let you go. You know what I mean? Wait, which boy, are we talking about the guy that, not the guy from the hotel room. Yeah, the young boy from the bathroom on 42nd Street outside the played theater. By, played by Bob Alaban, who was going on to an incredible acting and yeah, producing career. Yeah, familiar. Yeah. Yeah, I know he's been in like Dawson's like Park. His dad was a movie executive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So it's interesting. I remember Waldo Salt in an interview that I saw talked about how for screenwriters, he had great advice about flashbacks. He said they should always be in the present tense. Mm. And every time you see a flashback with Joe Buck, it's because that's what Joe Buck's thinking at that time. And it made me think about the idea of trauma. The first time I saw this movie, I was so shocked by those scenes where the good old boys literally pull him out of this woman, you know, and separate them and brutalize both of them. This time, you know, I'm kind of waiting for it and I'm kind of used to it. It still was disturbing, but I remember the first time I saw it, I felt traumatized watching it. Yeah. How humiliating and, you know, emasculating, you know, and, and it's not a Hollywood movie where Joe Buck saves the day. Yeah, he saves yeah. the hero. No, he's brutalized, yeah. as you say. And most of those flashbacks occur when he's looking at his reflection in a window or someplace. You know, he's reflecting on how that's a big part of him. And uh, I think the reason why all those scenes were included is apparently the first half of the book is all set in Texas. And it's not until halfway through the book that Joe Buck goes to New York. So Waldo Salt, I read, got the job because he told John Schlesinger, look, we have to start with Joe Buck going to New York. All that Texas stuff, we'll get it in there somewhere. But the story starts when Joe Buck goes to New York. And that's what I want to start with. Yeah. And so that's why they did it, I think, as flashbacks. But they felt they had to include it because it's Joe Buck's backstory. Well, I thought that the whole use of flashback in this way, this is me trying to use my um, film school knowledge, was really a way to raise tension steadily where you're constantly thinking about what happened in Texas, what happened with this girl, what happened to Joe Buck, what's going on there. But then you go to something else that's also traumatic, you know, and it kind of lines up to where Joe would be, we would call it nowadays triggered. So it would kind of line up as a trigger that you get the, the flashback, but then like over time to raise the tension, you see more and more of this flashback. And I, I thought it was like a great storytelling technique. And you only really see those kind of techniques in older movies, but older movies, it seems like they did cooler things with the edit. And as I remember, it's sort of like a bluish tint to the flashbacks too. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it does piece it together over time. You know, this brings up a couple different themes that I'd love to chat about. You know, I remember after the movie, I asked everybody if they remembered what the first shot of the movie was. And I don't think any of you did. But the very first shot of the movie, it's, it's a white, it's just white. You're just looking at white and the camera pulls back and it reveals that it's a movie screen at a drive-in movie, but the drive-in movie seems like it's not really maybe in use anymore or there's kids playing in front. So it's the middle of Texas, nowhere. And then you brought up, David, kind of the idea of the reflections in the movie. And there's even a scene where Joe Buck looks in the mirror and kind of looks like it was the inspiration for the mirror scene in Taxi Driver, but a lot less lethal. And again, try not to be too big on the spoilers, but the last shot of the movie is a reflection shot where reflection plays a very important part. So what I want to kind of tie it into and see if this resonates with anybody or tell me if I'm in a dead end over here. In the late 60s and into the 70s, 
culture changed and movies started to examine the movie past and basically say, those John Wayne movies that we all watched that got us riled up and got us ready to join the army to go to the Vietnam War and fight and all this, and then people coming back disillusioned. It really was about stripping away illusions, maybe creating new illusions while doing it. So I'm wondering if that resonates with anybody. Did you feel, because you, obviously you're not watching this in 1969, so you're not in the cultural moment, but did you get a feeling that this movie was somehow maybe a critique and that the reflections maybe are something like a reflection on our society? Am I right? No, I agree uh, completely. Knowing the little I know about 1969, I was like, oh, okay, so we're really going there. Now that's just the tip of the iceberg of what you see in films of psychologically what we explore. But I think for that time, it was like, oh, shit. They're really trying to discuss the human mind and the disposition of people in this time. Grace, you were nodding before. What was resonating with you with what I was saying? Yeah, I get what you were saying. And movies before this, like the studio films, weren't really telling a true story. They were telling like a fantastical story that is unattainable for the average American. But this is like a real gritty story that the filmmakers obviously wanted to show society like this is real life. Look at it. And this is the new era of Hollywood pretty much because after that, everything was no more musicals, really. It was just like real life. Yeah, I think I mentioned that one of the movies it was up against for Best Picture was Hello, Dolly, which I think was a financial disaster for the studio and was kind of the end of the musical era. Poor Barbara. I know. (laughs) You remember, Mark, because you were right, I didn't remember what the first shot was, but do you remember what's on the soundtrack during that first shot? I think it's the radio, but I'm not sure. Is it like... No, it might be the radio, you don't know, but as they pull back from that blank movie screen, you hear cowboys and Indians, Indians going, woo gunshots, right? So clearly very critical. If people in 1960 were critical of old John Wayne movies, it was especially the way Native Americans were portrayed. Mm. You know, it's funny, and he's wearing buckskin, which is kind of a Native American thing that was adapted by cowboys. And, you know, it's one of the things that I love about the movie is watching how his really gorgeous wardrobe that he starts with deteriorates. Yeah. At one point, he gets ketchup on it, I think, and his pants. And you and you can see the spot in future scenes where he wiped it off, right? Covering it up in the subway station, oh, like yeah. a mess. I was cringing so hard when he walked into that party and he's wet and covered in stains. And there's all these fabulous people. I'm like, I would die. Right. One of the revolutionary parts of this film was the costume design. So Anne Roth was the costume designer, a legend, very involved in the actor's studio scene. And she took it upon herself to be like the first method costume designer. She felt that character could be created by the costume. She really worked hard to make Joe Buck look sexy, but also kind of foolish. And yeah, there's a the job going that balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And Roth is yeah. a legend. Yeah, as a native Texan, that's kind of the appeal of the cowboy. You don't really expect cowboys to think a whole lot. You just kind of just expect them to do. And when I saw him, I immediately liked him. He kind of embodied this idea of Texas that I kind of always had as far as what a cowboy is or whatever. You know, always positive, polite, upbeat, but you kind of know that he can handle situations without being a jerk. Rizzo and Buck, all their dignity has been stripped away, right? They still want to be men. And, you know, they talk about it a lot. They want to uphold their feeling of masculinity. And, and that outfit he's wearing, it's like John Wayne. And Rizzo says that cowboy stuff is strictly for, and he uses dollar for gay people. <laughs> yeah. And one of the shots of the movie that really haunted me this time is when Joe Buck finally is out there on the streets of Times Square. You know, he's no longer really trying to get the rich ladies, whatever. And you see another cowboy. Yeah. The other guy with the cowboy hat who looks like the Marlboro Man. You know, if you remember (laughs) the old cigarette ads and looks like he's been doing it a lot longer and he's a lot harder, you know, a lot better at it probably. But that's Uh, the thing. The Marlboro Man was a symbol of masculinity for real all across America. People smoked cigarettes just so they'd look like that guy. Yeah, until he died of cancer. Right. (laughs) But at the same time, down on the docks in lower Manhattan, gay men were wearing chaps. Well, it ultimately became like the village people. Right. Yeah, made safe for America. I'd be at weddings and my mother-in-law would be dancing to, you know, YMCA. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, and she does a mean macarena too, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to again go to our guests and ask them, you know, I'm getting a sense from this conversation that this movie still works today, that it's still resonant, but I really want to know from you guys, how would you characterize it? Would you recommend this? Do you think it's resonant today? Were you ever bored watching the movie? I would definitely recommend it to most people. That maybe not like or something. He's probably seen it though. But <laughs> it was so aesthetically pleasing also. Like we were talking about the wardrobe. Everything was just so striking. I think it, it's just an incredible piece of art. And I would definitely recommend it to everybody. And I thought it was very what's the word poignant, I guess, when Joe finally calls him Rico instead of Ratso and then we know what happens, but it was when he finally respected him. And we don't know if, okay, I'm going to spoil it. We don't know if Fredso died before or after hearing that. So did he get the respect he always wanted? Right. And I, I kind of knew that was going to happen when Joe was talking to him. I was like, oh, it's going to happen. He's going to die. So it was <laughs> quite depressing, but I like depressing stories. <laughs> well, I mean, Hollywood's always wanted happy endings, right? They'll take a depressing novel and they'll put a happy ending on the end of it. Mm. And people walk away feeling better and the movie will do better at the box office, right? But sometimes depressing can be uplifting mm -hmm. if it feels truthful and yeah. if you feel a sense of catharsis. Mm. Yeah, it felt like the right ending. Any other ending, I would have been like, okay, well, the story's not really over. There was a sense of really depressing closure at the end um, because it's a new start for Joe Buck even though he just went through this traumatic event, but he's given a chance to start over in a way. So do you feel optimistic about Joe Buck at the very, very end? A little bit, but I'm still sad for Ratso. Mm. Uh, Jake, what about you? Yeah, I think I completely agree with Grace that I tend to resonate with this depressing tone in film, and I wish that we could explore it more. But I like the way that it was real and something that I always always think about whether it be a book a podcast or a movie with a fictional story is that like we're wrapped up in this box right in this time frame and whether it be a love story or these two characters get married and that's the end okay but when does this person die and then the story's over or when do they get divorced or when does this happen or when does that happen and I think the specific story left us in a place where we could grapple with the idea that outside of this crazy trauma that life goes on like it does in real life. They don't need and to coddle us with a happy ending. Right. And then I think the way in which you feel it in the film, I mean, personally, it was not like, a, oh God, I can't watch this. It's so depressing. It's like you can relate to the sentiment, draw from your own life because it's a depression of an internal sadness, you know? And it's earned. It doesn't feel cheap or like manipulative, I don't think. And, and okay. Jake, uh, just to kind of go to the other question too. Are there people you would recommend this movie to? Absolutely. I think I know so many people in the fashion world that will need or should see this if they haven't already. And um, I think everybody that I know would maybe watch this movie and be like, you would recommend this movie to me. <laughs> <laughs> because I think just thematically, it's so out there and the absurdity. And it's a great movie. And at the time, from what I've read, there was this very separate idea about if the film was a classic or whether it was good. And from what I read, Roger Ebert, and I read a review from Vincent Canby at the New York Times, and everyone was saying, you're going to hear the people in the film industry call this movie genius. And they're going to throw that word around. And there was a really like negative critical review from the film reviewers. And I think that says something as well. But I don't think a good movie leaves every single person you know, I hate to be a fashion nerd, but Alexander McQueen once said that real fashion should allow you to leave a runway show feeling love and disgust. I think those two things really are true of this film. And I would, in short, recommend it to everybody, whether I felt they could handle it or not. Guy, your feelings about recommending the movie and about whether it's depressing, uplifting, your feelings? Oh, oh well... It's an easy recommend. Um, one, everybody should go see every film, whether good or bad, because, and especially like film students, bad movies tell you what not to do and what to do. But this, this isn't anywhere near bad at all. There's some like really good stuff as far as like the 
shot selection and the pacing and things that you would never see. Like there was a coin slot on a television. Oh You had to put a quarter in the TV to watch it. That's nuts. The dirtiness of New York was also kind of weird. And I was talking to this older guy and he was like, oh, yeah, the New York in that movie was like the real New York. It's almost like New Yorkers that grew up around that time missed the dirt now that it's all cleaned <laughs> up or something. Like yeah, was, I was telling you that it was some of the punk rock era and it was, you know, kind of fed off that. So it was did you, is that how you felt? You kind of missed that? I don't, it's hard to say, you know, but yeah, he, he misses it. So anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was so cheap to live. It was crazy. I had friends that were living in squats for they even had brought in electricity off the street and, you know, there was art going on all over the place and, you know, really dissident art happening everywhere early 80s. Just like you guys, I kind of missed the Warhol parties, but I kind of got, you know, the, I don't know, the sequels. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, there was something about it where it was, the, the joke used to be New York is fun city. And I remember I had a poster when I was a kid that was like a mad magazine, like drawing up, you know, people getting stabbed and mugged and, <laughs> And it's fun, like, city. Park, fun city. Yeah, yeah, right. right. But right. Was, when you're young, yeah, it was both. It was so much more extreme. One. I, I mean, I grew up in Grand Village, right? And every time I walked on my door to go to school or to go to a store or whatever, yeah, I'd see something I'd never seen before. And something interesting would happen. I mean, it was very stimulating. It was also really scary because some of the things you saw were things you did not want to see. So uh, I miss it. It was a much more creative environment. Um, now, it's now it's nicer, you know, it's more comfortable and you, you don't have to be scared walking on the streets. Like they used to, have to, be, but they used to be like real immigrant neighborhoods. Like oh. there was, there was a real China, you know, well, Chinatown's kind of grown and taken over little Italy, but little Italy used to be something that it isn't now. And you had German town up on the East side. And, but a lot of that dirt and all those things in the building that they're in, it's all stuff left from like, you know, 50 years, a hundred years earlier. And that people were kind of living in the, you know, the remnants of past culture that had. Yeah, went, went. that was built in the 20s. And then the Depression and the World War put a stop to, you know, there. And then New York losing all of its industry. So it's hard to believe. But New York was the center of industry for the whole United States. I mean, everything was made there. All the shipping came there. The port, by far the most important port in the U.S. And now there is is it a port? Now there's just a beautiful uh, park along the Hudson <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Highline, which I kind of love. I love the Highline. Yeah, it's a great view. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, it's, it's changed completely. Uh, I want to, because somebody mentioned music. Mm. And I think. Uh, oh, God. I mean, yes. Yeah. We saw the movie with three, four days ago. I still can't get that song out of my head. Yeah. Everybody's yeah, me, me yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, that's in there. It's in there good, so, yeah. I actually did a little research of the music because I was curious. Me too. Like, okay, I, I'd like to hear what you <laughs> Yeah, Grace, why don't you start? Bob Dylan actually wrote a song for the movie. I didn't make it because he submitted it too late. Lay, Lady, Lay, oh. which is not one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> so I'm kind of happy to make it. But yeah, it's interesting that he wrote it for the movie. I had no idea. <laughs> the harmonica's theme from Midnight Cowboy is written for the movie by John Barry. That's a completely yeah, separate track, right? Because everybody's talking about me is really what opens the movie. Everybody's talking about it's what Harry Nelson does. Fred Neal wrote that song. So Fred Neal was a very, very popular folk singer in Greenwich Village on McDougal Street in the early 60s. So much so that like the first day that Bob Dylan arrived in Greenwich Village, he went to the Cafe Wa to see Fred Neal. Harry Nelson was doing a, an album called Ariel Ballet, I think. And um, the producer insisted it needed one more song. He said, there's just only nine songs. You need one more song. And he wanted uh, Nilsson to record this song. And Nilsson didn't want to record it because all the other songs were written by Nilsson. And Nilsson didn't really want to put any songs in the album that he hadn't written. But he decided to do it. And it became the big hit that sold the album. Yeah. Uh, what's funny is Harry Nilsson's from Brooklyn. And this guy, Neil, you know, is like a died in the wall lower New Yorker. But it sounds like, I, I thought it would be a down-home country song written by some textures. Like John, country John, music John Denver wrote it or something like country. Yeah. <laughs> so kind yeah. Of like, yeah. One last thing. Joni Mitchell wrote a song for the film called Midnight Cowboys. And uh, Schlesinger rejected it because it tells the story of Joe Buck, this song. 
And he said, it's too literal and it's not quite the right feeling. UA really wanted to have a big soundtrack. They wanted at least 10 songs that people would buy the soundtrack album for because Dustin Hoffman's The Graduate with the Simon and Garfunkel music had sold millions and millions of copies. And Schlesinger just fought and fought and fought and fought them. Just one of these only two songs. And so these songs keep repeating and they're the same two songs. But to yeah. me, it's perfect. And even the executives at UA, when they actually saw the final film, said, you know what? You're right. Any of you thinking about the- uh, if you're ever going to watch the movie again, would you watch it again? Would you wait a few oh, yeah. hours, 15 I minutes? Watch it again. Oh, yeah, I'll watch it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, seriously, it's a, you know, it's a rewatch. You got you to, it's a, yeah. a lot there. There's so much to take in here. Yeah. You know, they say that the definition of a classic is something that you can return to repeatedly with no diminishment of pleasure, right? So I had no less pleasure seeing this this time than I had in the past. What I do think is interesting, though, is certain movies or even books, works of art, when you see them at different points in your life, you have different life experiences that you bring to it and you think about it. That's part of the fun, I think, of revisiting classics. Mm -hmm. All right. You want to try the rating system? I'll describe it for you guys. So you only have four stars to work with and there are no zero stars because it is a triumph if you even make a half star movie. Four stars is only reserved for not only what you think is like a great movie, but it has to have touched you personally. It has to be one that you'd be willing to put into your top 10, top 20. It has to be really meaningful. It's an A+. So a two and a half star movie is a B movie, maybe a genre movie, but it's actually good. And if you're a fan of the genre, or if your friend is a fan of the genre, you'd recommend it to them, like a great film noir or a shoot 'em up or an action movie. Then we get to the really most awful thing you can be as a one-star movie, mm-hmm. because that means it's just a bad movie. That's a D. But the half-star movie is a movie that's so bad, but it's kind of fun to watch it for like camp reasons or because we know it's stupid and terrible, like Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, one might argue Showgirls is a little bit of a half-star movie, right? It's not a good movie, but <laughs> it is kind of fun to watch. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to start with Guy on this one. How would you rate Midnight Cowboy first time having seen it three days later? Okay, so like that that movie like needs like two more watches by me, right? Um, to pick it apart, to do some more analysis. But right now off the top, it's a, it's a three-star movie. It hit all the marks. It is great. Um, and that's like a, that's an A. A minus. A, a minus. Then, then it's a, yeah, see, I don't want to like just ask me in a couple of weeks, but right now it's a three star, maybe three and a quarter stars. All right. All right. Very good. Grace, I'm going to give you the next shot. Uh, maybe I'm being a little too generous, but I'm going to give it four stars because I could see myself watching it again and picking up on things and just really loving it. I'm really a sap for wardrobe, especially. So that plays a big part, but just the themes in general and the connection between the two characters, it's in my top 10 for sure. Oh, but wow. I, have, I have a pretty big top 10 list. I got to write them down and make sure it's all 10. It might be 30 <laughs> top 10. Yeah. <laughs> I've done but that. But I, I really loved it. Jake, what about you? You know, I want to agree with Grace. And, and the part that I want to agree on is that it, it would be a four because it did touch me personally. And it's something that I, if I were to make a film, that I would definitely be inspired by this style of filmmaking. So I'm going to give it a three and a half because I think it's a classic and that I would recommend it to people. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to go to David. So I think the first time I saw it, I probably would have given it a three and a half. But now I've seen it through all these different parts of my life and it's it's just touched me more and more every time I've seen it. And so it's a definite flow for me, without question. All right. I'm going to lay down mine. It's a three and a half for me, but only because my four stars are a little bit crowded. And, (laughs) you know, who knows, on a given day, I might change my mind about it. You know, one of the things that I thought was impressive about this movie was that it's saying a lot of things. It's a portrait of, you know, an anti-Hollywood, anti-cowboy kind of revisionist thing. But it's also a portrait of America. You know, it starts off in Texas, goes to New York City, the exact opposite. When they take the bus out of New York at the end, it's almost like a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. and also a little bit like you've lost your footing, you know, and now you're back in America. Yeah, it's not the grime and the awfulness of New York, but, you know, that, that was kind of exciting back there, right? 
even the shittiness was exciting about it. And it even ends up in Florida, you know, on the edge of coming into Miami. So it really is a portrait of America. And that's what I think makes it epic. I think that's what makes it feel bigger than just a two-person character story, which the genius of the movie is that that core of those two characters and those incredible performances is what makes the movie kind of great. But I think that kind of bigger picture about America is what makes it worthy of best picture. It's what makes it a big movie. And I think it's a lesson for filmmakers. You don't necessarily need a $100 million budget to make a big movie. There are Marvel movies that feel smaller than this to me. Oh, yeah. So for me... What's that? I read the budget was under four million. Yeah, which back then might be, what would it be like a thirty million movie today? Maybe it still was the that how I was four movie. million. They had to steal a lot of shots in order to keep New York looking real with a telephoto lens from inside a van, wow. so people wouldn't know they're making movies. Mm-hmm. And that's why, yeah. So when John Voight and uh, Dustin Hoffman are crossing the street, and there's that famous, it's probably the most famous line from the movie. Uh, you mentioned Taxi Driver. You know, are you looking at me and? And the equivalent in this movie is Ratso Rizzo going, hey, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. <laughs> and there's a huge controversy as to whether that was improvised. And I've heard now three stories. So Dustin often insists it was improvised. John Schlesinger says it was in the script. Wasn't there a story that like that he improvised the line and then Schlesinger did three more takes? That's what Schlesinger says. But to complicate that, I just recently read... Whoever is listening to this, maybe you'll check into your own research. Apparently, in the original script, before the film was shot, the whole thing is in the script. Hey, I'm walking here in the cab. And that the guy driving the cab was a member of the crew. Hmm. All right. Well, clearly, there's a lot of depth to this movie. And I just really want to thank Guy Lewis. I want to thank Grace Chapman and Jake Flowers. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for having us. It's fun. Oh, good. You guys had a good time? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I hope we can come back and watch some more movies with you guys. I want to thank my longtime friend and co-host, David Tausick. Thank you, Mark. So I'm Mark Netter. If you like our show, please tell your friends, rate and review the show so others can find us as well. Generation Film is an Electrocast production. Our producers are Dave Tausick and Guy Lewis. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Please join us on our next episode where we will see how another classic film plays for a new generation of movie lovers. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.